A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes, as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That point would be up until, well, through chapter 37. So if you're not there, catch up and then we'll see you back here. This is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. So, Crossland, I don't know if you were expecting this when you started this show, but uh, I'm kind of liking this book, man. (laughs) I think it's pretty good. It's a pretty good book. It's, it's a pretty good book. <laughs> it's, it's been a lot of build up to get to this book, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty good book. <laughs> it's a bit of a fucking wild ride, to be yeah, honest. No Even kidding. like going back through it at this point, I'm like, oh God, I forgot about that. I forgot about this. Just like little tiny things everywhere. Yeah. Oh, it's a lot of fun. man. Like the entire character of Cicero fell out of the back of my head, like just <laughs> completely. Um, but we'll talk about this in the show that scene where he is recounting kind of Darrow's thing is one of the scenes that sticks with me from this novel. I just don't know why I didn't remember that it was Cicero that said it. Anyway, today is our sixth episode covering Dark Age by Pierce Brown, and we are going to tackle chapters 32 through 37. But before we do that, let's talk about what we're drinking. Strawberry mojito. That's both of us. Yeah, we're both having strawberry mojitos. (laughs) Per the urging of the Discord. Yes. Would you make yours with? So assume the base recipe is the same, so you can run through that. Yeah. So I used a plantation rum, five year rum, because it's the rum that I have. So I used two ounces of that. I went real loosey goosey again with the with the measuring. That's the only thing I measured, (laughs) to be perfectly honest. (laughs) I was I was scraping the bottle of barrel as far as like ingredients go. So I went to my old apartment because we still have a garden there and they're letting us harvest all the stuff that we planted, which is sweet. There are strawberries in that garden. So I got a couple strawberries. I had a quarter of a lime left. So I used the rest of that. I've got a spearmint plant. So I've got spearmint instead of the normal mint and then just squirted a little bit of simple syrup. And then instead of any sort of club soda, I've got mean green hell's seltzer which is uh, kiwi, lime, mint, and pineapple. So, you know, it's a whole smorgasbord of things that probably shouldn't have gone into it, but it actually tastes really good. So I'm happy with it. Uh, What's your rendition looking like? My rendition is very similar, but actually measured. So obviously uh, six sprigs of mint. I juiced an entire lime, threw in six strawberries, mashed those all together. Actually, real quickly, let me let me order this a little bit differently because I actually drained out my mint after I let it mingle. So here's what I did. I put the mint and the lime and the club soda and the simple syrup and the rum all into the same thing, smashed the mint as you would, put it in the fridge for 10 minutes. Then I drained and removed the mint leaves, added the strawberries, muddled those, and then poured it into my serving cup. Okay. Just because I wanted to like, I figured I would actually like eat the strawberries, like the mashed, you know, I'd want to like kind of drink them. But like mint leaves can be very in- invasive. I don't know. 
especially when mashed. So I figured yeah. I'd let the mint sit there to kind of, you know, give off the flavor, give it that 10 minute window and then pulled it out at that point just to, you know, mm-hmm. rum of choice was the barrel aged uh, end of days rum, which is fantastic. Typical simple syrup, typical everything else. So two to one ratio between club soda and rum and right. simple syrup was a half ounce. So, yep. Cool. You know, I am, what, are, uh, what are you following that up with? Yeah. I, I don't know exactly how to pronounce this. Stiegel, S-T-I-E-G-L, Raspberry Rattler. Rattler. This brewing company is in Austria and opened up in 1492. Hmm. So. Wow. It was an old, old brewery. No joke. I haven't actually tasted it yet. Let's see. It's, I know it's light. I think it's like 3% or something like that. Wow. That's very light. PJ's going to be sober by the end of the show, folks. That's a refreshing change of pace, though, isn't it, Crossland? <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Uh, yeah, it's actually really, really good. A lot of raspberry. Clearly. Um, not a whole lot more beyond that. Just straight up raspberry drink. So what about you? I am following it up with, guess what? Is it a seltzer? No, it's not. It's actually uh, a High Point Imperial IPA. So I do have a seltzer on backup duty because I actually had one more in the back, but I am having the high point first. And then if I need something else to round out the episode, I've got the seltzer on uh, on backup. But it's a it's a nine percenter, you know, 12 ounce can. It should should kick my ass sufficiently. I had it, I think, three or four weeks ago on the show. It's my last can of this. And then very excited. I've got a couple of new Wilmington Brewery stuff to try out that I'm planning for next week. In addition to the promised, I swear to God, it will happen, old punk cocktail. <laughs> I just also, I didn't think you were also doing the mojito, so I figured I'd do the Patreon drink. Uh, and then we both showed up with mojitos. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you know, um, two different takes on it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm so excited. I just came up with a name for it in my head literally right now for that other beverage, and I'm very excited. Going to call it the old Chicago. After the, or something after along the those pizza lines. place? No. Well, exactly. <laughs> I was I was thinking like Chicago Punk or something like that, so I, I'm, I'm baking it. I'm baking it. That's not actually the name. So <laughs> with that, let's go. Fuck in. you. I'm changing it. Fuck you. I'm changing it. <laughs> I hate you. Uh, (laughs) Let's go into last week's predictions. So we've got a couple here to talk about. The first one, of course, is one that you brought up all the way back at the end of the Iron Gold, which we're now seeing the resolution for. What happens to Lyria? You said Uh, we see an epilogue for her, not a point of view in this book. And that is so fucking wrong. Hmm. She could be a ghosty, though. Not (laughs) or a clone. You think "Mm, Hmm. interesting. A clone, you say. Yep, she has uh, taken over the spot of Sophocles. Have you taken your sip yet for losing? Yeah, I just did. Okay, <laughs> just making sure. So I wanted to pose this one to you here because there's obviously a sort of conjecture that goes on inside of here, and Darrow kind of writes them off. But one of your questions is Alexander alive? You said, uh, "Nope, he succumbed to the Strom." Is what I literally <laughs> wrote in the book or in the uh, in the notes. <laughs> Literally strong. (laughs) Literally strong. How do you feel about this one? Do you want to resolve it? Mm, I feel like I feel like we can't because they keep talking about like knowing that that won't happen. Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I I believe this to be the correct answer, but I don't know if there's enough there to call it yet. Sure. 
Okay. Next one. Does Miss Horsey Lady receive any backlash from shooting an aircraft gun? It was actually an anti-take gun, but okay. Through a multi-billion credit art piece. You said... Uh... You didn't write down your answer I, to this one, PJ. You just said it. Well, I just didn't write it. it down, so I can't remember what I said. What did I you say, said, Crossland? I believe you said uh, that some of the silvers were going to peel off of her. Oh, yeah. I There wasn't going to be any like real backlash, but mm-hmm. like there'd be some tension. Well played political move. I'm going to go ahead and say she, you were... I mean, maybe this is connected. I, I don't... I don't <laughs> even if it is connected, I think you still drink... Okay, fine. Next question. Is Mustang alive? <laughs> oh, God. I forgot about this. No, and the Howlers use her insides as hiding places. So, PJ, they, how do you want to resolve this one? Well, she's not alive, as far as we know. But as far as we know, no Howlers dove into her <laughs> insides. <laughs> <laughs> it has not explicitly been said otherwise, but in hindsight, that might have been a little bit of a stretch to guess. So, okay. So I'll you... take the drink. <laughs> Just All right. being ridiculous with it. All right. But you do you think that Mustang is dead? Mm, no. Then why why'd you put no to the alive question? I hate because you. because that change it changed during this section. Did it? Yeah. Everyone confirms that she's dead. <laughs> yeah, basically. Too, too much. They confirm too, too much. Too, too much. Until we see a body. She's in the same boat as Alexander. <laughs> well, they're on different planets. And but. and Lilith up until last section. <laughs> for that matter. Literally 800 pages later, 900 pages later. <laughs> we got to see a body, man. Oh, man. All right, last one for the week. Does Electra share the same enthusiasm for Ephraim as Pax does? She doesn't trust him, wants nothing to do with him, but will go along with what are, whatever plan the two of them come up with. That seemed like a softball. Like that, that feels like a very wishy-washy answer. <laughs> I think it's pretty fair, though. Like, it's a good read of... A, here's the thing. While it may be a softball, it is a very good read of Electra, regardless. You yep. basically wrote the characters' motivations out on page. Pretty much. So I feel like it's pretty close to correct given this week. So I will take a drink. Okay. Even though I don't think it's fully answered yet, but I think that we kind of have an inkling of the way that she feels about things. Right. Tasty. <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's good. I Tasty. Like, tasty. I hate you again. <laughs> so with that, let's get into the chapters. Are you still laughing? Yeah. Giggling. <laughs> giggle, giggle, giggle. All right. Chapter 32, Darrow in Wake. This this chapter starts off very strong with kind of the, and by strong, I mean depressing, with the field of bodies surrounded by lavender. And it's it feels like such an intentional choice. Lavender is derived from the Latin term lavanda, which means to wash away. Obviously, also in Spanish, French, it's lavar, lavarse, um, etc. Generally used for wash. And I found that really interesting because it, it, to me, gave them this like moment of dignity to surround them with the lavender. And it feels like he also understands that they're they're going away and that it's also kind of a way of, of symbolizing that 
in a in a physical sense. It's a very deep read on what is effectively just putting a plant to try to soothe people and get rid of the smell. But I feel like it's you know, there's there's definitely something there. There's a reason that he chose lavender. There's something nice about it, especially in as bleak of a situation as they're in. It was well described. It was well thought out and meaningful to a certain extent. Yeah. What what do you think overall of uh, of Darrow's decision to do that, though? I was talking about Pierce. Oh, Darrow's decision to do it. <laughs> I think it makes sense for him. He's trying to boost morale as much as he can and to give some sort of semblance of dignity in a mass grave. Like, it's as much as he can do, and he's he's putting the effort forward. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. There is an obvious dreariness and inevitability in Darrow's tactical read on the whole situation that they're facing down after this, the Battle of the Ladon. Darrow also reflects on the loss of his commanding officers and the way that Atalantia has been gnawing them away. What do you make of their odds and how can he work his way out of this one? What do you think? What can he do? Oh, man. I mean, at this point, at this point in the book, he doesn't even know about Mustang yet. And it's already <laughs> like, like I said before. It's extremely fucking bleak. Like the the odds are not good here at this point. They they turn a little bit, but man, it is depressing. Yeah, and we still have like five hundred pages of this book to go yet, man. Like <laughs> there's so much yep. left. <laughs> if you thought the bleakness was over, oh boy. <laughs> Can we turn a corner? Is there a corner to turn? I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, it's definitely uncertain. I can't help but with, agree with you, right? So I guess, is there is there a way... Maybe this is a better question to ask at the end of the section with Darrow when we talk about Gil Rastis for a second. So we'll, we'll return to that one just because given the full context of everything, it'll be helpful, better. Mm-hmm. The return of of Orion's body as well as the pain that Callaway feels is just immense. Darrow isn't clear on how to fill that hole in leadership of course with Orion gone and sort of I, there are all kinds of things going on with the body and Callaway seems like a natural answer but even then his demeanor and response shows that he is almost has as little interest in Darrow or his reasoning as anyone else as anyone from the society remnant does. He just he's literally been broken by this loss yeah entirely but he is the natural choice he makes sense and despite his interest i'm pretty confident in his sort of dedication to the cause and to to these people that he's going to take the reins anyway you know Mm -hmm. i can't see him enjoying it but he's I, i think he'll certainly do it for the cause that's, I think, especially once we approach the, again, the end of this section, that becomes a little bit more clear. But yeah, I, I mean, and you can understand his pain. I mean, he's literally been sacrificing other soldiers in order to go out there and find this body against will, against all suggestion, escaping the med bay to grab pilots to go do this thing. And he's, in a way, Callaway's behavior and actions reminds me of a young Darrow, you know, like what he would have done. And yeah. I think Darrow also reflects on that later with Alexander, right? Yeah. That, there's, there's a lot of like, what would I do as a younger guy coming from Darrow that he simultaneously like tries to tap into and like push away from 
mm-hmm. it seems there's an identity crisis specifically with that going on with Endero. And it's hard to hard to decipher what he's actually thinking, you know? Yeah, I totally agree. I think identity crisis is a great way of putting that, especially given how we kind of discuss Darrow's personalities or moods as they kind of like consume him in different moments. So I I think that totally fits Mm -hmm. to that point. The moment shared between Darrow and Rona discussing the fate of Alexander is a great one. I think one that focuses on the budding relationship that was building between the two of them, but was likely cut short by his fated trip to Taiki to save as many souls as he possibly could being a great Arcos, of course, but there's also an important note of change that Darrow acknowledges in him. I wish for one small moment that I were a young man again, who could charge forward nourished by his own righteousness. That man would damn the danger and search for Alexander as Callaway searched for Orion, but that man would have died in the desert and taken all of his men with him. That man isn't what my army needs. What do you make of that reaction? We'd, we'd been talking about the dueling personality a little bit. I almost wonder if, if it would boost morale for him to act like that, you know, or if it would be mm-hmm. like here, co- here goes like the, the reapers going off the deep end with this. Like, why are we following him? Like it's, I could see it going completely either way, like rallying with the enthusiasm or condemning the, the, the dumb choice. I really can't figure out what I think would happen, you know? Mm, got it. So working out the alternate scenario, you're kind of yeah. stuck in the same same boat you know it's really funny for all of the sort of worship that darrow kind of lauds on indirectly to marcus aurelius and other stoics he spends a lot of time contemplating other paths yeah (laughs) like (laughs) stoics are pretty fervently not against that idea but they say that generally focusing on it isn't worth your fucking time (laughs) (laughs) so it just it's funny how that overlaps a little bit Mm mm-hmm what do you make of Rona and Alexander's budding relationship though? And kind of the loss that she feels. Oh man, man, that's just, it's tough. How old is she? She's like 19 or something. Yeah. I want to say she's like 19 or 20. Yeah. Like that's very close in age. No, uh, heartbreak, man. Oh, my boyfriend went and not even boyfriend, like flirty boy. Yeah. Flirty, my flirty boy. (laughs) Flirty boy. She's 20, by the way. Not a kid, not like dealing with a first crush or anything like that, but she's young. Right. So, I don't know. Yeah. She's just tragic, but maybe she'll date her Drakenjager instead. <laughs> she fucks shit up with her Drakenjager, so yeah. I assume they're on yeah, good Yeah, he's terms. not going to let her down. Oh, man. Fair enough. The few remaining leaders Darrow has are concerned with the waning supplies and the increase in radiation sickness among the men. What did you make of the squabbling between Thraxa and Harnassus surrounding supplies and the decisions to be made around the war and the allocation of supplies? Also, Thraxa is a hard, hard jerk. Yeah. Kind of. Like, totally a warrior. She's cold. Absolutely. She's frigid. But... They, she makes a really good point, specifically within this, like about being cold. Fuck, where is that at? I had it, I had it up, but I had to move it. It's on two seventy nine. Cold blood wins wars, Thraxus says. Mm. Yeah, at least Orion's villainy could be traced to anger. Young, yours is just cold blood. Mm-hmm. That's what that was a response to. I just their back and forth is so so smooth and so well written, and it's so rooted in the story and this lore and it still comes across smoothly 
like the thank you ash lord being just a snide comment like, it is it, some of the best dialogue it's so good it it's mm-hmm. really captivating so yeah. beyond just being a high tension situation with for the characters themselves reading it was a joy mm-hmm. pitting two people with these kind of like opposite moral values is just fantastic it's just absolutely absolutely fantastic but what about the supplies and decisions sorry i, I brought that up before uh, Oh, <laughs> answer yeah. the other question. Feels stressful to be Darrow. I don't think I'd want to be him. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna make that hot take. I don't think I'd like to make those decisions. Wow, that is like a, an ice cube take. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone in their right minds would want to be Darrow. <laughs> I'd like to know how to fight like him. Yeah, right. There there are character traits I would love to borrow, but his specific situation, hell nah. <laughs> Absolutely not. You could not convince, yeah, no, no, no. Especially not after the Battle of the Ladon. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. So the, the chapter ends with Darrow denying Harnass's suggestion of surrender and with a communication from Atalantia about the Sovereign. This kind of brings it back to the morale sort of issue, I think a little bit the the idea of surrender just if everybody's broken what's the point of trying to like push a fight but Mm -hmm. i don't know i'd really like to see what the actual army is feeling i don't think they're feeling great yeah we mostly deal with the people that are like actively dying instead one one thing that we didn't mention earlier was obviously the morning star lighting up its cannons and absolutely ashing all of the people beneath the ship in these sort of bright bright flashes um, and then people coming and collecting those ashes. That is, to me, the mo- one of the most like real moments of of war and the consequences of this entire war being presented to us in kind of a horrifying way, where they don't even have graves, they don't have any sort of service or anything like that. They are just kind of unceremoniously. Although Darrow tries to add as much ceremony as can with the lavender and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, just literally turned to ash, right? This book destroys moods. Yeah. When they're collecting the ash, he says something along line along the lines of the they're hoping to bring these ashes back to Mars, but all of us know none of us will make it there. Something to that mm-hmm. effect. Like mm. <laughs> why well, you gotta why why you gotta say that? Yeah, Man. I think I think that he also reiterates something very similar to that in I think thirty four when he talks about the the kind of the ritual the rites that are going on in that in might the be water because they're of. also holding the jars but we we see the reds collect jars of ash of people here and he i think at that point talks about the ashes of mars that they want to be like buried with basically but like they know that they're not going to be buried like they just mm-hmm. watched a bunch of people get liquidated like that's not going to happen right Oof. war man and sort of the real the real side effects of war that's part of the reason i love this Mm-hmm. with that chapter 33 darrow the devil's deal it's so funny to me that i forgot about this chapter title and that last week we spent a decent amount of time talking about a faustian bargain or what faustian bargains are and this is kind of an example of a faustian bargain it's just not given from like a supernatural point which is generally the way that those work uh it's generally it's a supernatural element that gives away the deal but mm-hmm. i just found it interesting and funny after we talked about it for so long last week yeah yeah it's pretty good but 
One of the first chapters in Red Rising, wasn't it called mm-hmm. The Devil's Dance? There actually isn't one called The Devil's Dance, but The Devil's Dance was referred to okay. as the moment when they're like hanging. Right. And their their feet are still twitching. That's The Devil's Dance. Mm-hmm. Um, not a chapter title, but definitely a thing. I thought, Although, it, for, for whatever reason, I thought it was a chapter as well. You know, the more that I think about it, PJ, I think you're kind of close because he continually uses references to the noose being tightened right like and even lysander says that this should have like tightened the noose this should have been like the execution so Mm. i like that yeah i'm curious i don't i i think it's not as explicit i don't think it's explicit enough for it to be an intentional like connection but oh no no but i i like calling out the devil's dance here and like thinking back to it because Mm -hmm. it does we're we are narrowly avoiding the devil's dance (laughs) at every turn yeah literally every turn (laughs) the conversation here surrounding pyrus as well is fantastic and a great allegory that's tucked into the conversation again we talked about this last week but pierce has generally had a penchant for a lot of this stuff hiding in the background and so him kind of being very upfront with the description and describing and giving us enough to understand the metaphor i think is great here it's also another way that atlantia seems to think that she can pull one over on darrow in the republic what do you make of her display here to darrow i think the most ridiculous part of this whole thing is the fact that she's using her pet snake as a drug first of all <laughs> like i've got to point that out like she's mm-hmm. taking microdoses of venom recreationally and is just kind of like i don't know squirming in ecstasy the entire time which could just be her taking like pleasure in in darrow's pain but i think it's also she's actively like medicating herself with the snake but i don't know i i I think it's always cool to see darrow call someone out on a bluff without really having to think too hard about it yeah he he approaches conversations like this with such coolness i guess calm and collected and really really intelligent but reads people like a fucking book man and it was, it was cool oh, to yeah. see her call him out or see him call her out on this yeah and again i i think that the other part that's great here about kind of their their back and forth and the way that they kind of talk is he calls her out as the last of the the sisters and the least favorite daughter of yeah. the ash lord by far and just sort of totally doesn't she takes her down like four pegs and like just absolutely knocks her out of the park. I also love like we never really got to know Moira, right? And there really isn't a good way for us to ever know Moira. But the way that he kind of describes her as the joy of the Ash Lord gives a little bit of backing to the character and like makes her make it a little bit more sense where she was like a political tool, but she was happy. And, you know, I mean, comparatively, it's, it's, a, it's a good lens to view her through. But it also leaves Atlantia to be like the piece of shit that we know her as. I'd be curious Even though she's if, we, if we can get to know Moira through Lysander's memories a little bit. <laughs> I don't know. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? <laughs> we'll see. We'll get to know a bunch of characters that we never knew before through Lysander's memories. <laughs> <laughs> Just resurfacing. Yeah. Oh fuck can't wait to talk more about that but you're you're not necessarily wrong because it does give a picture of aja and octavia that's right pretty fantastic i love i love the way that darrow insults her and like they're kind of back and <laughs> forth he also comes to realize though in in the sort of insults that are being flung back and forth that like she has changed like his insults aren't entirely correct yeah so after 
Atalantia repudiates democracy as the disease that toppled the strongest of empires, Rome, the American, or actually I think she says Athens, the American Empire. Maybe it was Rome. I fucking can't remember. The American Empire and the Indian, I assume, Empire. Darrow really kind of sees where we ended last week, of course, with the Day of Red Doves, as she's dubbed it, and is in immense internal pain, comparing this loss of Mustang to that of EO, while not flinching visibly from... Atalantia's pressure i also love that she says that it was a subcontractor after he asks you know like was this you yeah. and he's like nah subcontractor <laughs> like fuck god what a fucking terrible way to hear about this news by the way mm-hmm. like that's got to be one of the worst worst ways to hear about it except in like maybe uh i don't know space tweet or something like that might be worse. the equivalent of a space tweet. He has some really good comments to her, though, like right away in this conversation, something along the lines of, I wish we could have done this in person. I had big plans for you. And she just kind of shakes it off. But they're, they're back and forth, much like uh, uh, Thraxas and Harnassus is, is really, really well done. It's fantastic so the way that they kind of have this back and forth. And then, you know, he is trying so hard to not react and is very obviously trained in this regard on his own will through all of time and all the things that we've seen him go through he's able to kind of muster enough strength to keep it all together which Mm -hmm. good for you darrow yeah good for you you know Uh. and in part this internal monologue reminds me of the scene with harmony from golden sun where darrow was shaken of his faith and set up the plan to bomb the to do the bombing of the gala uh what did you take from his reflections is that the point where uh, he learns that Eo is pregnant? Yes. Yeah, where he was going to okay. be a father. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking of when I was reading this. Just his his internal monologue just spirals. And mm-hmm. reading his thoughts made me anxious. Like, I can only imagine what he was feeling in that in that moment. It, again, I'm appraised the writing here. It's really well done. But yeah, it, it, it harkens back to that moment entirely. And it's exactly what I was thinking about when I was reading it. Yeah, he runs through so many things in his head, right? He runs through wishing that he spent more time with his family. He runs through regretting going to war at all. He he runs through all of these different things. He kind of goes through even a like stoic sort of recompense of a mantra being like, you fucking moron. You didn't realize that like your your life coming here was a waste and you should have gone home because maybe you could have taken the armada. Maybe you could have done other things. And arguably just didn't spend enough time doing premeditatio malorum, but you know, whatever, that's fine. They're just all these like different comments that, that rush out of him, that build that anxiety in, in this moment. And I hate it for Darrow, but I love it from a writing perspective. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely something. At the end of this conversation, the two leaders appear to have reached really a stalemate discussing nuking each other in various ways yeah. <laughs> and sort of what that would do to the planet or what that would do to them. And Atalantia's power over the rest of the society remnant is really called into question. What do you make of his sort of call out? I mean, she's hard to read, but Darrow is obviously making some pretty, pretty sound logical steps to figure out what position Atalantia is truly in, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't know what force is working with them being the syndicate, assuming they're actually like working closely together as opposed to just like this one hit. Mm -hmm. But I I would assume so if her, if she refers to it as a subcontractor that coyly, 
Like I, I would assume they're probably working pretty closely together. They've got they've got people fucking everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like they they are as far as they can tell established basically across the entire solar system. So yeah. they're a well funded and uh, well established foe. I don't know the numbers of like the society remnant versus the syndicate, but I would think that Darrow is probably heavily underestimating the number of people that they've got under their control. That's that's fair. I think he's I think he's reading a couple of things very directly and very cleanly. I think that he might be underestimating the total number of people that are under control, but I think that he's kind of on it when it comes to Atalantia's power over everyone else, you know? That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. For the record, PJ as well, I have to I have to specify this because we haven't actually talked about this. We've approached a point where I am also in a black box and I don't know the answer to some of these things. Ooh, good point. So, like, just so you know, I can't be definitive about everything. <laughs> okay. Now you've got the ultimate problem of you also can't tell me when you don't know. Because Correct. if you don't know, then... <laughs> then that spoils and says that it can't resolve. I just want to also, yeah. like, I just thought about it and I was like, I don't know if he actually knows, like, the kind of predicament that I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I never thought about that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's it's worth it's worth saying that obviously to fans, fans will know when I'm speculating and when I'm not, you know, and people who have read further than us. But, you know, it's uh, we're kind of approaching a point where any question you ask, I might be asking the same question. <laughs> uh, so after presenting the Day of Red Doves to his other commanders, Darrow makes a bold but I think important decision ultimately to everything as far as the Republic goes. He leaves his fate and the fate of the other leaders in their hands without his direct guidance outside of prioritizing the men and then the Republic in that order. This has to be a really difficult decision for Darrow to decide to leave it up to the commanders, no? Yeah, but I think it's the right choice. Like, incredibly difficult, but he he calls it out himself saying that he wouldn't be able to make an unbiased decision to quote every single police chief in every single police procedural. He's too close to this case. So <laughs> it's a good call. I think it is the right choice. And in the end, it ends up being a very tense one because it's divided by an entire two chapters, basically, of kind of decision making on the part of everyone. But it is, I think, ultimately the right one, right? Like, not only Mm -hmm. is he just too close to the case, but he also is so hampered by emotions that any choice that he made right now, like the choices that he made back in in Golden Sun that we're referencing, were completely hampered by his emotions, completely turned and changed. Right. So, with that chapter... What? Anything else? No, No, you're good. You sure? You didn't didn't have... Mm -hmm. you, You didn't? You didn't? You didn't? What? What'd you say? What was that? What? What? What was that? Huh? Bitch? Chapter 34, Lysander, <laughs> Shadows of War. Which, by the way, wonderful video game. It is a wonderful video game. <laughs> and even the quote that's like tucked inside of the chapter, I really like. I didn't call it out in particular, but I really like where he references kind of them as the Shadows of War. Great, great little bit. Great thing to lend to the, the title. But the chapter starts with something that we've already talked a little bit about with a memory. One of Aja and Octavia on Lake Selene, him walking down the steps with his eyes closed after being forced to 
by Octavia, eventually falling and breaking his arm, his bone poking out, all while teaching him something of a rude lesson trying to awaken his mind's eye. What did you think of the flashback with Octavia and Aja? I talked about this earlier a little bit because I I always love these flashbacks. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I just really I want to know more about Octavia more than anything. Mm-hmm. I think she's a really really interesting character and she shows her brutality a little bit here. She shows mm-hmm. some venom like but she always has a reason for it at least with Lysander it seems. Like it seems like she she genuinely cares very very deeply about him and like is doing this for a reason awaken his mind's eye i still don't quite understand that i know we're getting more and more like information on it should i be able to understand that by this point are you talking about the mind's eye in general like what in general like what it is how it works i i think we've got a decent picture from iron gold right where it's kind of like a meditative state wherein He can block out different things. And I think in particular in this section, he says that he still feels pain, but is kind of numb to it. Right. So like the pain is still there, but it's clouded. But there's a physical object along with it. Right. No, no, it's just I thought there was like a teardrop shaped glass thing. Teardrop shaped glass thing. Are you talking about the Oculus, which we talked about last week? Yeah, that might be what I'm thinking of. Yeah, the Oculus is like an it is like a a building. Okay, that uh, that Virginia is in. Unless I'm, I, I that's don't. She talk. She mentions the mind's eye as well at that point. Yes, and she's talking about yes. all the things from Octavia. Totally, totally. And she says that like the elusive mind's eye or something like that. Yeah, totally. Yep. Before she's yeah brutally killed. Hypothetically. Hypothetically brutally killed. Allegedly killed. Allegedly. By (laughs) most of the characters. (laughs) Everyone is very convinced that she's dead. Not me, sir. (laughs) Never PJ. But yeah, I mean, there's a ton here, right? So I think what's, what's most upsetting to me about this chapter is that we see Aja share so much compassion for Lysander. And like it repaints Aja in a little bit like slightly right mm-hmm. she always she always kind of came off as this like tool of war but she was like no don't do that to him like what what are you doing and she was like you already spoiled one child referring to ajax and it's like oh god like <laughs> fucking octavia jesus christ <laughs> this is aja you're talking to and about yeah. like d- what she's great i really like her i don't know why <laughs> I really well, like your character. Do it again. Yeah. Right. How's he going to learn if you don't make him do it again? Oh, uh, fuck. With his arm broken, <laughs> bone poking out. Like, oh, you should have known there was corn. At there. least said it. You should have known about the crow feed. <laughs> Is that yeah. what you're saying? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Baked, baked into him from a young age, but it is interesting that it comes flooding back to him. Mm-hmm. I, I love, I love a quote. There, there's so much, of course, that comes out of Octavia's mouth that is fantastic. But the quote that sticks with me here, of course, is the tragedy of the gifted is the belief they are entitled to greatness. Lysander, as a human, you are entitled only to death. Uh well, first of all, here's where you lecture me about stoicism again, right? <laughs> like, lay it on me, buddy. Let's go. It depends. One through three. What? Pick a number. One. 
Alexander the Great and his mule driver both died and the same thing happened to them both. They're absorbed alike into the life force of the world or dissolved alike into atoms. Okay. It's just a, yeah. It's a good quote. quote. Good, good deal. Yep. Wonderful. Yep. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) this, this was one of my favorite quotes of the entire section though. And really one of the, one of the best quotes in the book so far, I think. You know, it's it's like you think about this is going to sound so weird. You think about all the kids that like took AP classes, right? And are like, I'm the smartest child or, or kids that were told that they were gifted at a young age and then like didn't do anything with it because they believe that they were kind of entitled to to sort of the greatness or fell off in one way or another. Not to say that like I'm also not totally inside of that group <laughs> of, of people who, you know, like felt like they were entitled. But like you really you have to earn everything that you do. And I think that that's such a fantastic, fantastic summary given to Lysander of, of sort of, you have to be your own life's change agent. Right. Yeah. You got to be the change that you want to see in the world, so to speak, as you well, can see on any bumper sticker. Very fucking cliche. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's I, why I, I said I it. was hitting a cliched point and no, like you tripled down. <laughs> that's why I said it. Uh, oh man all right all right so (laughs) you spend the next couple of pages with lysander reflecting on what had to come to pass after the reaper's light resistance came and went (laughs) roan of course is missing abducted captured by the rising but calendora has freed lysander and others you know they're a small group cicero survives as well and joins up with the rest of them it's a rough rough walk for lysander and company what an understatement (laughs) they got absolutely fucked dude how many of them died like they left with like 70 or something and like there's 13 at some point yeah i think i think they're down to five golds three grays okay at the end like at the very end of this yeah 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 Yeah, that's a that's that's a lot of death that's not easy no i'm surprised the grays survived well so is cicero (laughs) (laughs) good Uh, Good yeah. point. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's definitely uh, having a hell of a time, but it's, yeah, I, like you said, profound understatement. You're right. You're right. I definitely understated it. They lost a ton of people. And it kind of gives weight to the Ladon as it was described early on, earlier on in the book as like the slayer of armies as these people literally cannot walk out of it. And they're even measuring their supplies and they're, they're unable to kind of even come to terms with it. Mm-hmm. Bad time. What do you make of Lysander's dreams of a chair, white doors, and the sound of crashing waves that he has while he's sleeping? I'm assuming it it's going to kind of come into uh, the same deal with it with uh, his mother teaching him how to play piano that he doesn't remember. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing it's in the same sort of vein, something to do with his mom, memories that he doesn't remember. Okay. Does All that right. make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's... I think it's up to you to determine what you think it means. So, yeah, you think it's reminiscing about different things and memories that he's missing. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. What do you think like the white doors could be? Hmm. I don't know, man. <laughs> I didn't think that closely about it. You know, as, as I think about like the sounds of crashing waves, I'm like, is it maybe the Sea of Discordia out on Ganymede, like visiting grandfather Lorne? I mean, yeah, like that's a, where my brain goes there. A beach house can just be a beach house sometimes, Crossland. It doesn't Shut have up. to be that in depth. <laughs> I believe that theory. 
I can get behind that. In fact, I'm going to adopt it as my own. That's my theory. He's remembering being at Lauren's. <laughs> I'm taking ownership of it. I've claimed it. Do you have a flag? Oh, man. It, that will forever be one of my favorite little comedy sketches of all time. Mm-hmm. Do you have a flag? Uh, <laughs> For those you don't know, uh, Eddie Izzard. Yeah, that entire comedy special is one of one of the most impactful for me, <laughs> um, regardless of whether or not it is for other people. It is definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, it's front wonderful. to back. So getting back to it, I like really, really like Cicero and the story that he tells here about Nero's hunt for a white gazelle. And the way that like Calendor even boxed at the idea that like Nero would chase for a gazelle for kilometers and for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on end because he refused to shoot something and he'd prefer to actually kill it with a razor. He refused to eat anything that he didn't kill with his own razor is what what he said. Yes. Yes. Correct. (laughs) Which also makes his entire life a lot more complicated. (laughs) (laughs) It really does. Did we ever Um, have scenes of him eating things? Yeah, there's there's at least one scene in Golden Sun uh, with um, Pliny, I believe, and uh, Leto, who dies pretty quick after he's introduced in Golden Sun. <laughs> yeah, pretty sure. If, it's also not to say that maybe Nero just doesn't go hunting every once in a while and like kill a bunch and then they freeze it. You know, like any any good northern Minnesotan might. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> That's a very uh, good point. I, I think it also like this this little section here does it a does an excellent job highlighting Cicero's voice, which, again, I just want to say harkens a little bit back to Tactus. It feels kind of similar. Um, and B, I think it just does like an excellent job highlighting the sorts of differences that we see between the golds. And it's refreshing to see again in kind of a strangely comforting way, even though I disagree with their ideals. You know what I mean? Like we spent the original trilogy submersed in this culture of this sort of extreme behavior. And it was kind of nice to get like a dose of levity and familiarity in sort of what we came to expect the sort of radiant gold culture. Getting an account of Darrow without being like directly connected to these people or like Darrow's not directly connected to them so much. Mm-hmm. That's a cool experience to see like his his legend being disseminated amongst the people that haven't met him before yeah i loved that i absolutely adored the way that that kind of played with played with us you know and in darrow in the story delivering the grapes as well as nero's little work in progress as is like fucking fierce and that that whole story is just intense of course because ultimately it's derived from nero eating lion which is of course also his house's animal <laughs> and so there's there's this whole connection between like yep we we hunted we killed a nemean lion which is also a reference to hercules and killing that lion cooking it and he like just ate it but cavax wouldn't fucking touch it like is very clearly an indication of him understanding the wrath of nero and sort of the expectation and then the grapes and the callback to the way that he killed iona bologna and just i'm never not gonna laugh at that name i know know. (laughs) i'm also never gonna forget it (laughs) uh is that actually how it's pronounced iona bologna yep not iona nope iona good was it intentional to rhyme i don't know that's a good question for pierce we'll bank that one just in case we ever interview him 
<laughs> it's it's, a, it's the question that we would ask in addition gold. to questions about cooks gold question yes yeah <laughs> but but for real I, I think i said it on the front side of this episode but this is one of my favorite or most memorable moments of this book it just sticks out to me as this moment that i always remember this description of this young man walking down and, and everything else and oh man mm-hmm. just great yeah also a little call out to ragnar being the pale rider i think or pale pale something or other as well within this mm-hmm. yeah i wasn't sure what they were calling out explicitly but yeah definitely that makes sense. definitely referring to ragnar and his stasis or status under magnus oh right yep pretty sure so the chapter ends with Cicero, of course, trying to convince Lysander to kill the Greys to help their chance of survival. But Lysander sticks to his moral guns of protecting his men, even in the face of certain death, I would say. Not even not not just like grave peril, but certain death. Yeah, I really, really liked the fact that he stood up for them like this. Mm-hmm. It, it actually it proves his morals, like proves that he can walk the walk and not just talk the talk, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. Like, this is this is the moral superiority that he believes should be adhered to by by gold culture, and he's actually like putting his money where, where his mouth is, so to speak. So I I loved the fact that he did this. Yeah, I I think it's really important for his character, like you said. Like even now, as he feels like he's literally dying from his melted half melted face and radiation sickness and dehydration. He is still sticking by some of those moral principles to save the people, likely because he he remembers after the death of Cassius, the the Vindabona. And he thinks about the way that the colors were treated on the Vindabona, you know, like when he was trying to rescue them. And I'm sure that's been sticking with him forever. And here are these loyal low colors walking mm. with him. Right. But probably to their deaths. But yeah. But what else are you going to do? Yeah, better than just killing them outright to take their water. Well, I from from a survival standpoint, I think that makes more sense. Right. But from the from the perspective of the Greys, like what else are they going to do? Right. They have no other choice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agreed. With that, we move into chapter thirty-five. Darrow endure. Screwface wakes up Darrow and takes him to the sea. Before we get there, though, we pass through a lot of wonderful description of the world of Heliopolis and sort of the post the post side of this war and conflict that we've seen. We find ourselves submerged in that of the Rat Legion of the Sea Cliffs and the Blind Reds and other colors scattered through their ranks as they're dunked in some sort of holy communion, as Darrow describes it. What did you read out of this, this sort of return to faith for the Reds? I meant to like read this passage again and I didn't, but as far as like my first impression of it was, or I guess second, but my immediate reflection on it without like explicitly going into the book with this question in mind was that it, it it didn't feel so much like a return to faith and more of just sort of a last rights kind of deal. Like it it didn't, it didn't seem like, I don't know. And maybe, maybe I'm wrong and maybe I'm missing something in my, in my recollection of it, but it, it felt more just like a, all right, here we go. This is this is it. Let's uh, let's get some let's get some religion in before we're <laughs> expired. You know, 
Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right on the last rights thing. I, I just sort of mean that I think that it's a return, like it's a moment where they get to go back to their faith, you know, not like it's oh, like okay. they lost their faith and then are returning to it. It's gotcha. really just sort of a ritual in the middle of things because they understand that they're approaching the end of the rights. So I, I actually love you referring to it as last rights because I think that that's closer in line with what it is. Yeah, and I mean, in the way that you just described it, Return to faith makes total sense. I, I read it as a like um, be re becoming religious. That's clearly not what you were going for in the question. So, yeah, no, no, not not saying that they weren't religious. Like Darrow is the one who maybe, you know, if he were to suddenly become faithful in the veil again, then that would be that kind of return to faith. This yeah. is more of them continuing their faith and kind of like you said, I, I think last rites is a good way of thinking about it. You know, a it's sort of. That's effectively uh, what it is, right? Baptism in the Sea of Heliopolis, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's uh it's definitely hard, brutal. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. everyone's having a really bad time. Really, really bad time in Heliopolis. So I I love, of course, the ob- obelisks land and they cook a bunch of the fishes and all that scene setting is is fantastic. Screwface tears off his shirt and he's like, what the fuck? Are you like not going to do this? Like, you fucking idiot. And goes in after the obelisks, climbs up one, makes it to the top. And we finally arrive at these things that were shot from the twin guns of South Pacifica, the twins of South Pacifica. And I think it's just a wonderful moment of joy and relief after so many pages <laughs> yeah (laughs) i mean we get we've gotten a couple of different moments like this you know like i said the cicero story was a good thing to like happen at the time that it did but this actually feels like a a a wave of positivity for the republic in a large way i also love of course that we we saw this happen 300 pages ago at the very beginning of this book almost actually exactly 300 pages ago we saw these launched and we see them arrive now and we we saw kind of the tail end of that speech again a hundred ish pages ago from Mustang's perspective. It's just mm-hmm. it's a great way to kind of align the timeline, and I think that it's wonderful. Yeah, it just in time, man. Like I feel like they would have been happier if it had come a couple days before. <laughs> so same but, deal. You know, like now's good. Like now's <laughs> better than later. Now's fine. Yeah, but yeah, it's got thousands and thousands and thousands of uh these like radiation poisoning pills or radiation like treatment pills essentially it, it's enough for the entire army for like a year i think is what he says which is yeah sweet. yeah he's gonna be able to take care of the army for radiation for a year so everyone of the soldiers plenty of food all of a sudden all these supply problems evaporate mm-hmm. and that's like i'm not gonna say most of their problems but it's a it's a it's a heavy burden of a problem right now. Mm-hmm. Still Definitely. got shit to worry about, but now they don't have to worry about just fucking dying because they're living too long, you know? Right, right. It especially, it only gets better, of course, when we get to the recording of Mustang that we get to listen to slash, you know, read here. It's it's such, it has such a profound emotional impact on Darrow you could you can just tell because of the way that he kind of reacts and the way that you could imagine him reacting to this, right? It's just despite it being like three or four paragraphs and probably a minute or two, it is such a good good read. Little excerpt here. You know, I believe we all begin equal parts light and dark. I fear you think your strength lies in your darkness. But the measure of a man is not the fear he sows in his enemies, it is the hope he gives his friends. 
I could no more ask Pax to stop tinkering with my data pad than I could ask you to change who you are. I know that. I only ask that you remember what you mean to me, to your son, to your people. You have not been abandoned. I will come for you. Severo will come for you. The Republic will come for you. Until then, endure, my love. Endure. Fucking beautiful. And this is this is after the point where she pivots from being the sovereign to Mustang, you know, his his wife, of course, and he, he recognizes that change talking directly to her as opposed to helping him plan and helping him try to win this out. And as a final speech from Mustang, I think that this is fantastic. You say that like she's dead, but <laughs> I, this speech was fucking perfect. Yeah. Like, it was so good. I felt inspired by it. Like I felt motivated by it, which was, I was getting jacked reading it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can do this. <laughs> so I still think there there's something to Darrow embracing the darkness a little bit because mm-hmm. at, to a certain extent, a lot of his strength does come from that. Like she, she's making the argument that all of her, like, I think he has to rely on both as the Reaper. The Reaper is entirely darkness, man. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I think I think he can't just let that part go. But I think she's right. He has to like take take notice of the light side too. Yeah, I think you're right. Right, I think that part of the the Reaper is entirely darkness. Right, as we've discussed him previously, as we've talked about throughout Iron Gold, and we've talked about this now into Dark Age, is that Darrow post the box is very different pre the box, and he kind of has separated himself into these two sort of identities. And I think that she's also kind of calling that out that she even recognizes the differences between the the different layers of him here, right? Mm-hmm. And she's saying, you know, like you're you were born with the capacity to be a good person and a bad person like light and dark and that's not your only strength i've seen you work through the light i've seen you before the box you know there, there's kind of this sort of subtext that you can pull from it a little bit but yeah i fucking that speech so good man <sighs> the last we hear of mustang harness's speech though to follow that um, up for now for now <laughs> you're so hopeful <laughs> instead of this book that has been nothing but a pit of despair <laughs> like what else am i gonna do cross links <laughs> like i feel like oh, i'm man. always the one calling out all of the characters as being dead like, <laughs> should it tell you something that i'm saying someone's dead <laughs> yeah it, it, I, it tells me that you're trying to trick me okay all right fine <laughs> Harnassus's speech, I think, is also incredibly rousing here as he turns down what we expected to be a surrender of forces and turns it into a giant fuck you with his middle fingers up with his bloody damn to Atlantia as he blasts her ship, a dreadnought away in the sky, dropping the shields just temporarily enough. And it's just such a strong, powerful moment wherein even he says that Darrow belongs in the chair and that the Reaper of Mars and the army of the society uh, of the Republic, excuse me, will win out the day. Callaway even puts it more succinctly. Fuck the Vox. Hail Reaper. And I yeah. fucking love it. I, I'm curious what that sentiment will will do for them later on, because who knows what state the Vox is in right now? You know, like mm-hmm. who's controlling the Vox? Who's True. leading the Vox at this point? Does the Vox exist at this point? I think all yeah. of them died. 
Well, I mean, Publius is technically the Vox, right? Like he is a member of the Vox, so is Zahn oh, okay. the Imperator. So I thought they I thought they were like representing different factions. No, no. It's they were both Vox Populi, but they had different like subsets of factions. Like Zan was okay. kind of it a sort of he was more of the I don't know, I'd probably call him a radical. And then mm-hmm. Publius was less of a radical. He's more the straight laced dude, which is the personality that he's built up forever. Right. That makes sense. We end the chapter with a tally of those lost in his family, those alive, and a call to summon the master maker, Gil Rostes. So I, I want to call back to a question that I asked forever ago. What do you think Darrow does next? What's hmm. the next move? Master maker is coming in. I'm guessing he's going to use the the remaining storm gods, alter them okay. in some way. Hmm. I don't know how. Okay. I don't know what. But I'm thinking something like that. Okay. Because right. they've got access to these giant, giant machines that have a ton of power associated with them. Like, I think they can do they something with it. sunk into the ocean, if Did I remember they? correctly. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. when, when each of the pilots died, each one, like, sunk. Gotcha. Well, and then I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it, but... I, my creativity is lacking right now, I think. All right. All right. Fair enough. Just curious as to what you might think he could be doing. So with that, we move into chapter 36, Lyria Victim. I, I need to lead off with this chapter being that I asked my dad recently what his most memorable chapter, one of his most memorable chapters of any of the books was. And he said there were a couple. There was the gala. There's the end of Golden Sun there's the moment on the Battle of the Ladon when all the ships are blowing up and the nukes drop. And then there's this. This chapter is harrowing mm-hmm. in like a profoundly psychologically fucked way. Yeah, that's a good way to <laughs> describe it. I had a tough time like even writing questions to this. So I don't think that I did. a. I almost like already we haven't even talked about it yet, but I almost feel like I don't do a good enough of job of exploring this chapter because there is just so much here to mine in in terms of Lyria's psyche. But regardless, we, we will continue onwards and do our best. Mm-hmm. The the torture that we find Lyria submerged in when we finally return to her, I think, is a truly profound one that that has truly forced her inward into this psychological coma that we've we've kind of already talked about a little bit my first immediate thought is to that of the box that darrow was in at the beginning of morningstar albeit perhaps worse with the inversion of gravity on him yeah that's super fucking cool on her like that's that is absolutely fucked the like needing to shit in the in the tube and pee in the tube and like needing to shovel her own shit in the tube dude (sighs) fucking ridiculous probably pretty effective as far as a torture technique goes though it's fucked, it's, but I would bet effective. Well, I mean, it's clearly effective. It's breaking her down. The the constant switch between light and sound fucking her up. There, there's just so much. It's just the worst. And for Lyria, this is awful. Does she deserve this? I don't know. I have a tough time with that question. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like we'll get into that a little bit because I know you've got a couple <laughs> questions regarding. Yeah. you know we we also find at some point that she's been trapped in this hellscape losing track of time and that she did at one point have a conversation with a very angry victra 
how Julii. What what do you make of Victor's assessment of Lyria and her crimes? I mean, to a certain extent, I can completely understand where she's coming from. Like, obviously, she's reacting in an over over the top, fucking terrible way. Mm-hmm. But they had a very very explicit protocol for these reasons, like for this exact reason. And they talked about it all the time. They did training on it all the time. And she still broke protocol and it resulted in Victor's child being kidnapped. Like, that's not cool, man. Like, that, that's not something that should be, that should go unpunished entirely, you know? Like, yes, it was an honest mistake, but she still broke their protocol. And I'm not saying she should be tortured forever for it, but there should be some sort of reprimand, I, I would think. You know? Yeah, one would assume typical reprimand, though, would be like getting fired from your job, not drugged and dragged into a torture cell. <laughs> yeah, but also we're dealing with really, really crazy circumstances here. This isn't you broke protocol and nothing came of it, but you still broke protocol, so you're fired. This is you broke protocol and like one of the worst things that could have happened did. This is also vigilante justice, though, entirely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is it vigilante if she's one of the authorities? She's not really an authority, though. <laughs> she's authoritarian. <laughs> yeah, she is authoritarian. I wouldn't call Victor an authority, though. She's not no, a senator. She's not like true. she's not anything outside of it, like a CEO, effectively. Um, yeah, that's a good point. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's um, it's a good point. It's a whole, um, it's a whole mess for her for sure. It's a whole fucking mess. Severo, I feel like you could consider authority, though. Severo is more of an authority because at the very least, well, I would say he was more of an authority. He was. Yeah. Until the Iron Gold and the whole, you know, killing of Wolfgar thing and the Wardens chasing after him. Although now the Wardens are bad guys. So, like, who really knows? Yeah, <laughs> it's all a fucking mess, man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a thing. But sure. do, you, do you see where I'm coming from at least a little bit? Like, I'm, I'm oh, not... Yeah. At all saying that I condone this behavior, but at, at at the very least, I understand where she's coming from. Yeah, I, I do, too. I think that it makes a lot of sense from Victor's perspective where she's like, you know, what? like you fucked up. You knew the rules. You messed up. And I'm now taking it out on you because I don't think that anyone else can or will. And mm. otherwise, you're going to get a cakewalk. And that's not cool. You don't deserve that because my kid is missing. Right. And she's going to have to trade a fucking Starfleet for her child. Yeah, that's a that's a cost. Just small, minor, minor mm-hmm. cost. Barely anything. Barely an inconvenience. Like, I think she so, probably found that in her couch cushions, right? <clears throat> right, right. Totally. What, what do you make of Lyria's comments on of her suggesting that she's only a victim to her circumstances? I mean, I feel like it'd be hard to feel any different. She is so far in over her head. Like, yeah. By pure happenstance, though, like everything, not every like she is she is scrappy and she knows when to push an advantage. Biggest example would be getting on Cavex's shit with Liam, just knowing knowing what buttons to push and knowing how to how to like push an advantage, I think, is one of her strengths a little bit. But every like nothing bad that's happened with the exception of like breaking protocol has been her fault you know she she is constantly getting shit on just for being where she is at the moment it's hard to think any different 
it'd be hard to think any different for her. So I, I completely understand. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that this is interesting. This also has a strange, to me, it has a strange like metatextual context because, and you know, again, like don't don't necessarily want to bring this up, but a lot of people's critiques of Iron Gold were of Lyria not having a whole lot of um, agency over what she could or could not do. Yeah. And this feels like a sort of direct response to that in a way of her, of like Pierce and her character reflecting on kind of the lack of agency. Are you just a victim? And this is sort of her in some way, some small way at the end of this, like retaking that agency. Kind of. Yeah. She's acknowledging it. I don't know if she's really able to take it back at this point right now, you know? Well, no, but she's, she's doing something, you know, like her responding to the letter in the first place is. That's true. That's a very something. So Lyria refers to something interesting about the red propaganda that she's heard over the years that I think we've also repeated. But now there's finally a name. After Darrow spent time in the box and came out changed, it was referred to as the second birth by the Reds. I I really think that it's kind of like his third birth, if we consider the fact that he had to be carved the first time. But I do like the terminology provided and how it kind of directly fits into our metaphor surrounding the changes we've seen in Darrow over the books. I think it's the second birth of the Reaper. Like if we're just going to keep going along with the idea that they're two entities like separate from each other. Second birth of the Reaper, third birth of Darrow. That makes sense. I would argue... Maybe not the third de- the third birth of Darrow, but like the death of Darrow, right? As like we knew. Yeah. Or like the burying of Darrow. <laughs> uh, but obviously that's not going to be something that fits into kind of the a sales pitch for <laughs> soldiers yeah. to join the war. But it does feel like Pierce, again, is pointing to us directly and sort of the idea of Darrow being kind of two-spirited in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it also evokes more Messiah- ideals True. within him yeah it does really point point strongly at the messiah complex that is around darrow especially regarding the reds mm-hmm. for sure we end the week rather we end this chapter <laughs> as lyria finds in the vent a letter written on cloth explaining that volga is in the cell next to her and begins to write a response using her blood and a fingernail she recognizes that volga is the name of the obsidian that was working with ephraim because he mentioned her name when he was Philippe, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Her empathy was a little bit unexpected. And I, I think we've gotten to see her grow as a character, understanding more of the nuance of her, of the wrongdoings in general, things that happen to her that are bad or negative in general, seeing the nuance to it. And instead of just pushing back immediately saying, fuck them, she's able to sort of Take a step back and think about the situation. Think about the car that they were in and the look on Volga's face and having having sort of an empathetic thought, realizing that, oh, she's probably in a similar like mindset as I am, or she's feeling guilty about this too. And maybe there's some redemption that can be had there. So what what was the quote? Hi, I'm Lyria. I think you might know me. Something like that. Yes. Yeah, I believe that was the beginning of the quote. Yeah, we didn't see beyond that. But Correct. She's clearly writing a slightly longer letter to be exchanged through the gap. But the quote, I think is, the quote is, my name is Lyria. You might remember me. Dot, dot, dot. Yes. Thank you. I was just about to look it up. It's such a good moment for her. And I think in a large part, like you said, it shows a ton of empathy. Yeah. And kind of character growth. So 
Mm-hmm. So it's a great way to reintroduce her to the story, I think, here now. Definitely. So that, we move into chapter 37, the final chapter of the week, Ephraim, Heart of Venus. So for the first time since Iron Gold, we've hit all of our characters in a single week. <laughs> what Does, fun if you, like, ignore all the chaos, torture, and, like, death. Well, I mean, are we just ignoring Virginia now? She's point of view in the book, and she was not in this week. Uh, I, I mean, I was thinking, like, Iron Gold characters, the four Iron Gold characters, but I, I would concede Fair. and say that if Mustang is dead, then her POV no longer counts, yeah? Well, I mean, we could just have a bunch of blank pages. <laughs> <laughs> How funny would that be? D.E.D. dead. <laughs> 37, Virginia. <laughs> Three blank pages. Entirely. Fair enough. Fair enough. I love the secret language of peas here. You know, it's it's just so great. And again, it kind of fits into our food meals and cooks <laughs> thing. <laughs> but this is so much more important and so critical. We've been building, we've been culminating to this moment where the secret language is exchanged via food and no less by peas. But what a, like a fun way to like pass information from person to person, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's really smart. It's subtle enough that like it It'd be tough to get caught. They're actively talking and gossiping in case they're being like vocally monitored. But I, I'm really curious who came up with that system. If it was Ephraim or if it was Pax, I could see it being either way. You know, like yeah. I, I could see this being the way that Pax talked to Electra like, right. secretly at home <laughs> or something like that. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. I I feel like this is probably more of a Pax thing than an Ephraim thing. Although, you know, it's interesting to even pose that question because Ephraim is kind of the crew leader of sorts, and he would he could totally be one to come up with a a you know a plan like that. And or, he's he's also been kind of a black ops guy in the past. Yeah, yeah. So this so, totally fits that. Yeah, exactly. But it could also be Pax because of his sort of genius wonderkind nature. You know. Yeah. Exactly. There, there's there's good arguments both ways. It's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I love the bit that Pax goes on as well, explaining the Darker Vault and the history of the Obsidians and explaining about the King Cthulhu and the paradigm that was altered, which, of course, is funny because Darrow says paradigm, like shift the paradigm all the fucking time. But he mm-hmm. also introduces something about the Ascomanis, that of Volsung Fa or Volsung the Taker, as well as other possible escapees from the Darker Vault. And that this has been going on for generations of loons of the of the various line that's been in charge of, you know, the Octavia loon, etc. What's on your mind, given the reveal of the history here? Like, what what are you thinking? I'm thinking tongueless was a part of this. Mm. I'm thinking tongueless somehow like fits in here. I don't think he was necessarily like part of the the dark revolt because that was hundreds of years ago, right? Yeah, 500 years ago. Yeah, but a descendant and maybe sure. working within the same parameters. That's why he's in deep grave. That's why he's had his tongue cut out. Like, I don't know. That's it's it's a stretch, but that's where my mind went immediately for some reason. OK, any any take on any of the other kind of comments or thoughts on the, the history, the the switchover, of course, from the patriarchy to the matriarchy. Uh, mm-hmm. The sort of inverting of everything. Any other thoughts on the the history of the Obsidian? So it, it seems completely like shrouded in not only mystery, but intentionally like P 
people taking on the names without necessarily like having the history of it, you know, like the, they were saying the space pirates weren't, they, they go by the name Askamani, but they're not necessarily like of the same, like generate. They're not related, I guess is, is kind of the vibe I got off of it. Is that what it said? Or did I just completely misread that? It was a little bit more vague than that, right? Like that they could, they're, you're onto it. I would say that there's a little bit of kind of a question mark around, are these the actual Oscamani that escaped or are they just a bunch of escapees that happened over time? Is that, did they just grab the name because of the myth? Like there's yeah. sort of that back and forth between Ephraim and Pax, which is sort of questioning even the knowledge that he shares. Mm-hmm. So all it makes me want is a dedicated like lore dump of, of obsidians, <laughs> you know, like I really want to read up on their history because I like Norse mythology in general. I find it super, super interesting. So pairing that with more, like more with lore space. Absolutely. And space and pirates, man, like what's not to love in this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> this there's just so much like great stuff that's kind of here i i think that one of the interesting questions that's also posed is like atlas's connection to the story of the rim obsidians right and rather the belt obsidians not the rim obsidians and i think it lends another angle do you think that he had anything to do with volsung or volsung fa or was he a captive to the askamani what do you make of of his situation and how it relates. Cause he, he came back three years after the sovereign had died. I think it could be both, both okay. of those things. It's sort of a, a captivity that grew to be some sort of twisted partnership. I, I think that'd be probably the, the most dangerous way this could have gone about, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That would make for a dangerous pairing of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what, that's what I'm thinking. A little bit of both, okay. but again, excited to learn more. I love Atlas's connection to the whole thing. It's like, why, where, what? You were sent out there because Octavia like was kind of banishing you, and there's just this whole like, why would why would she do that? Especially given what we know about Atlas. Like, did that shape him into an even more terrifying force? Like, oh mm-hmm. man. Ugh. So I I love this quote here. So it comes at the very end of the story when Ephraim says that <laughs> Lysander or not Lysander, excuse me, Pax is shit at telling bedtime stories. He immediately says, apologies, next time I'll tell you the tale of Sophocles the clone, a creature so noble and so wise he learned to cheat death. And Pierce admitted in an interview somewhere that he's always been fascinated with the story of Plagueis the Wise in Star Wars and that this line is a direct homage to that obsession, which I just think is fantastic, right? It's, it's just fucking like, hilarious. Yeah. Does this make Sophocles a Sith Lord? I think that's a, another one that we should just pocket. <laughs> If we ever get to talk to Pierce, like, that'd be great. Yeah. Okay. Is Sophocles a Sith Lord? Is he a Sith Lord? Within reason. Within reason. The Obsidians seem to be preparing for war as they assemble with the children and Freyhild on the heart of Venus to be addressed by Sephi. But first, she dispatches of Amel, her pink of whom she believes or knows to be an assassin. And wow, was that a fucking scene. Yeah, that was tense. That was just... The coordination of all of it. Like, do you think she like planned for that hologram to be corrupted so Amel would walk out onto the stage at that moment? Or do you think it was just anytime he goes on stage, that's when we're pulling this shit? One more time on the on the positive. What so so Amel comes out onto the stage 
Yep. Because the holograms of the show of the opera are yep. like malfunctioning and the, the things mm-hmm. corrupted. Do you think that was a coordinated effort to corrupt the thing so he oh, would come totally. out on stage? I would go so far as to say that Pro- Goodkeend was probably pulling some scuggy shit and like intentionally corrupting the file so that it would end at a certain point. Like yeah. I would go so far as to assume something like that. Yeah, that makes sense. A, a flex of in, indirect muscle that these obsidians have learned. Mm-hmm. I yeah. I was genuinely thinking that Ephraim would be like apprehended more more formally mm. at this point for what he's working on with Pax. Yeah, yeah, for what he's working on with Pax and for having completed training. And he hasn't necessarily completed it, but... He says they're ready, but yeah. Yeah, like, she she needs them now, so he can't keep training them. So, what she need him for? Fair. Good, good point. Good point. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, like, her reasoning comes to light here. The Sovereign is dead. Severo's captured... Rolo, the arch governor of Mars, is dead as well, shot by his butler. Many howlers murdered. Everything is absolutely going to hell, and there is no way out of it. Valdir believes this to be a lie by Osgard that he told, but he disagrees. And Sefi points to Xenophon as the one who shared the information regarding Amel and sort of the way that she was potentially going to be assassinated by a poison bottle. There's just a lot kind of is poured out for Ephraim in front of him. And what'd you make of it? The fact that she says the sovereign is dead so simply, like I, I liked, I liked the call out of how callous she is towards like telling Pax that her his mom's dead, basically yeah. through through this right. method. And uh, there's the quote at the top of three twenty one. You didn't have to do it like that. I say, I did not bring you here to play nursemaid to children or lecture lecture me, Mister Horn. Like she's all fucking business and absolutely just knows, knows no like warmth is kind of what it seems like. Like, This is a child. He's like 10. And I I get that she has more important things that she has to deal with. But that was even for her. That was pretty cool. So, man, there's so much shit going on. Yeah, there's there's, of course, a lot here that is is happening. It's just a question of. What does what is Ephraim going to do now that he knows all of these different things and sort of Valdir questioning Osgard and there seems to be other political machinations going on in the background. Mm. There's just a lot of moving parts to consider here. Yeah, I can't imagine Ephraim wants to stay here. Like whatever they're working on is accelerated tenfold now. Like I I, I can't imagine he wants to get deployed with them. You know? Yeah. So there, there's going to be some hijinks that go about, I think, from Ephraim and from Pax and from Electra, I suppose. Okay. So after the kids storm out of the room at the news, Sefi reveals her plan, of which Mustang had predicted, that Sefi plans to take Samaria in the mines by using the Skuggy to do so. The continent doesn't burn and is seized with a little bit more finesse than Valdir might exert. If there is... One word that comes to mind when I think of obsidian, it is absolutely finesse. (laughs) (laughs) These, (laughs) the Skuggy, like, I don't know. I don't know how to imagine them, but they are not small. They are not sneaky. They are not anything but just brutal. So, 
but at the same time, they're more more finesse focused than anybody else in their tribe. So I guess it's fine, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's that plan's solid, though. Like, don't overrun everything. That's just more chaos. That's just more Mm -hmm. insanity. I don't think it would go well for anybody. No, I think it would do more harm than good. And that's why I think that she's ultimately on to something. And again, the Sefi the Wise kind of takes the forefront here mm-hmm. in, a, in a very intelligent way, I think. Right. There's also a little bit that I skipped over that I think is worthwhile. We get a lot of Electra in this chapter. Like we, she talks a lot for Pax and the pain that he is going through at the knowledge that his mother is dead. Mm-hmm. and she speaks up a lot in kind of defense of him and i think for a 10 year old she's particularly mature and has a good grasp on things versus the sort of like machine of rage that we'd seen her be before what'd you make of electra spitfire man like there there is very clearly we know who her parents are <laughs> Fair. like she does not fall far from either tree no she doesn't pull punches for sure yeah. I mean, there, there's the quote towards the bottom of 320 confronting Sefi about like all of this, everything that's going on. You weakened her by leaving. You abandoned them. This is your fault. I know it. He knows it. We all fucking know it. Like she is a child and is able to really dig into the to the background and the the dominoes that fall, you know, Mm hmm. Just not to be slept on, you know, she is, yeah. she is, she is a force already. Totally. Without a doubt. Mm-hmm. So we're into PJ's predictions. First one up here is a home prediction. Uh, what we have is how will the rest of the Republic react to Darrow's forces? Will there be any additional support? You believe? I think that if any support comes, it will come from agents of the syndicate. And they will be trapped. They'll be traps of some sort. Okay. Yeah. All right. Sweet. And then we have a question here from Daniel Green's Discord from user Iron Rain. Can Lyria be redeemed of her crimes against the Julii family? I think in the eyes of Victra, maybe. But it would have to come after Electra is returned safely. Um, and in some somewhat of a crazy turn of events, several have to be the voice of reason that convinces her to be a little bit more reasonable in in her like reprimand of Deliria that's still ongoing. <laughs> sure. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then our third question of the week, again, from another person sourced outside. Thank you again for submitting these questions. Continue to submit them to us. We'd, we'd love to hear what you want PJ to talk about. What will Ephraim do faced with fighting against the Republic on the side of the Obsidian? This comes from Raul Legs 32 from Reddit. Um, I think he's gonna exca- going to escape. I think he, Pax, and Electra will pull something together and abscond before they get deployed anywhere. Or right. rather, before Ephraim gets deployed anywhere, I doubt they'd they'd send Pax and Elector along with them. But yeah, yeah, right, right. They want to keep their uh, their meal tickets as they were yeah. safe. Exactly, totally. So with that, we're going to actually introduce something new. I've been talking about doing this for a while now on the show. Um, it's something that I've I've always really enjoyed, kind of more 
audience participation, like we're getting in terms of questions and other things like that. But I like the idea of posing a question of the week. So we want to hear from you. Please send us an email, reply to us with a tweet, any way that you possibly can to reach out to us. What is one of your favorite speeches delivered by a fictional character and why? You can send that to wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com or tweet at us at wordsandwhiskeypod. Send it on Instagram, wordswhiskeypod. Is it pod or show? Shit. Now I'm, now I, forget. Uh, I think it's pod. I think it's pod. I'm almost certain, but here I am questioning life choices. It is words and whiskey pod. All right. I did have it right. Words and whiskey pod? Words whiskey pod. Words whiskey pod. Jesus. I fucked, I fucked it up. So words whiskey pod. <laughs> Send it to you us. Could, you could find either. it in our show notes. You can also find it in our show notes. So before we get there. Next week, we'll be covering chapters 38 through 43. It's going to be a quick read. We're going to read over the changeover to part three. So we will be in part three at the end of next week. All told, it's about 44 pages. So it's a short one. Okay. So with that, that's where we'll leave you for the week. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Tim and Andrew, for keeping the show's lights on. Check out the links in the show notes, like I mentioned, uh, you can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, websites, socials, all in one easy, convenient spot. Yeah. And we've got a number of awesome things going on on the Patreon this month. Uh, we've already, at this point, released the Wrath of Man episode. We've got an episode coming out of speculative knowledge, traveling, tackling goal setting and ambition and then we've got a at the end of the month we've got a breakdown of blink 182's career coming in hopes of uh giving a little bit of momentum and energy to positive momentum and energy to mark hoppus given his uh, cancer diagnosis so thank you so much for the support it really means the world to us we are beyond stoked and so glad to have you all as listeners please support us if you can and we love you we'll see you next week Have a good one.